Thank you for joining us today. This is Clint Byers, lead pastor of Forward Church. I pray this message blesses and encourages you. I hope it inspires transformative grace in your heart and establishes you even deeper in your new covenant identity in Christ. Now take a deep breath, become aware of God's spirit within you, and enjoy the message. We're, this is going to be the end of the series, Detoxing from Religion. Have you gotten something out of this series so far? You know, it's important. And we're talking about the idea of what detox is, you know, people that are addicted to substances or behaviors. It's a process. There is a detoxing process that happens to kick that addiction. Your body, your brain has to go through the, the breaking of the physical or emotional dependency on those behaviors or substances. It's the same way with religion. We are addicted to the thought processes that religion gives us. We are addicted to them because they touch on our identity. And today we're talking about the mother load of bad theology and ideas within Christianity that people attach their identities to. Because a lot of people have what has been called circumstance theology. In other words, they base their beliefs about God on what they've been through, you know, to use an illustration that Dave reminded me of, somebody broke their ankle, and as a result of them breaking their ankle, it gave them enough downtime to turn toward God, and they realized that some things were going on and how it affected their family, and see, therefore, God allowed me to break my ankle because it turned me to Him. And I'm thinking, well, you know, I'm sorry that it takes you to break your ankle to turn to God. That's how today's going to go, by the way, just so you know. <laughs> if that was like, mm, get ready for a lot of mm's. There's going to be a lot of discussion as a result of this. And, 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 you know, this is a conversation, this is a topic, this is a subject that has been discussed and wrestled with since the origination of the church. Even before that, Greek philosophers talked about these ideas. And the reason I'm going there, people ask me, why are you so adamant? Why are you so confrontational about these subjects? And I'm like, because other people that preach the other side of it are so adamant to preach that God is allowing cancer and God is causing starvation in Africa and God is doing it. And if he's not doing it, he's allowing it. And I say, what's the difference? So I, it, it, it bothers me because one of the main reasons that we started this church is to stand up for the character of God, who God really is. Now, that does not mean that we have it all worked out. I am not the one that finally is going to give you all the answers to your Bible. The Holy Spirit does that. What I do is I run my mouth quite a bit, long enough. Hopefully, you open your heart to the Holy Spirit and He teaches you because He's a teacher. Amen? So I want you to pursue these subjects between you and the Father. And I appreciate the opportunity to sow into your heart, hearts and tweak your thinking a little bit because these are important subjects. We have to get this right. We are tasked with representing God. We are tasked with carrying the gospel the truth and the good news about the kingdom of Christ into this world. And we represent God. We are telling people who God is. Now, again, these subjects have been wrestled with and discussed and books written about it. And people smarter than me have taught on it and come to conclusions. I don't know it all. I don't have it all worked out. But I know who God is, specifically who Jesus has told us that he is. That's what we're bringing this all down to is that we have to filter and not just filter, but we have to understand God specifically through Christ. There is a particular approach 
to Scripture that starts at the beginning, works its way through, and says that Christ is just an, the ultimate expression in the lineage of who God has revealed Himself to be, and it all builds up to that. But I say it's actually the opposite. He is God from the beginning. In that place before anything was created, the logic of God, the wisdom of God existed. The plan of God to send Himself, you know, we don't understand that dynamic, into this earth to save people. God's heart toward people is to save them. And what happens is people build a circumstance theology. Well, you see, brother, what happened is, is I had this happen to me, this adverse situation, and it caused me to lie flat on my back long enough to where I realized what I was doing was this, and now I follow God. And I actually have had conversations with people. We, you know, we've got a mutual friend that went through cancer, and this guy's kind of drifted off into you know, kind of a Christocentric form of universalism. But I remember having a conversation with him about cancer. He'd gone through a cancer, a pretty aggressive cancer. And how he was so appreciative and thankful of the cancer and how God did that to him and brought it to him because it was, he learned all these lessons and things. And it's like, and so I, here was my question. Could you have learned those lessons without the cancer? Now, what I'm going to show you today is some ways to reason through, not philosophically, not from a humanistic perspective, but taking Scripture and reasoning according to how, God, how Jesus showed us God's character really is. And I'm going to talk today, I mean, I, you know, I'm just going to go there because uh, there, the, ultimately what we're talking about is the difference between Calvinism and Armenianism. Armenianism says that mankind has free will. Calvinism would say God has already predetermined everything and nothing happens without him having already decided that it would happen. So everything is being executed according to, according to his plan. Now, there are all kind of factions and fractions and different you know, beliefs and perspectives all along those scales that people end up kind of building their own thought. And when, if, if we were to describe what we think of sovereignty, how God is executing his power in this earth. However many people are in this room, we'd get that many different perspectives. And that's okay. There's, there's, there, is a, there is a way of us to have our personal relationship with God, but there is a truth of who he is and who his character is. You know, with Calvinism, and, and I really try hard not to create division, and I'm not trying to say that all these people are bad people. People who hold to a Calvinistic, systematic approach to theology and scripture, m loving people, most of them. Uh, sorry, I should not do that. But, you know, so I'm, it's not about people, it's about the ideas. So when I talk about these kinds of ideas, it, it, it's interesting how you look at Calvinism and a systematic approach to theology in general, whether they hold to the five points of Calvinism or not, if you're not familiar with what that is, I'm not going to take time to go into it. But that realm tends to attract a lot of academic-minded people. You know, that, what that mindset would say is this, is that they just stick to the, what the Scripture says. There's not a lot of interaction with the Spirit of God, the Spirit's somehow involved, there's no emotionalism, there's no topical reference of looking at a specific subject throughout the Bible. It's like, let's just look at this particular verse, read it straight through, and deal with the text, you know. That mindset within Christianity kind of presents the Bible as a textbook about God and goes through and says, well, this is what the text says. I'm not going to read myself into it. 
I'm not going to put emotion into it. I'm not going to try to get you to believe what I believe. All I'm going to do is I'm going to read the text. That sounds good, right? Except that you have to deal with the topics and you have to deal with application. You have to deal with, okay, I realize that this says this about God, but is he, is he actually relating to people based on this statement of his power? And I'll clarify where I'm, what I mean by that. Does that make sense so far? Well-meaning people are attracted to that kind of non-spirit approach to an academic mindset that just looks at the Bible as text and tries to teach what the Bible says. And so the ultimate goal is to understand what the Scripture says, not to know God. Now, we know God through Scripture as well, but we know Him through His indwelling Spirit and His voice in our hearts, and the two should meet. Amen? Now, again, you know, we've got however long we've got today. I'm not going to try to pretend to give you all the answers and characterize all of that and give you some deep theological package to sort all that stuff through, so bear with me. All right, here we go. i got some questions for you. This one is interesting. Is God evil? So this is interaction day today. Everybody should have an answer. You, everybody should say either yes or no. Is God evil? No. Okay. Does God do evil? No. Yes or no? Everybody has an answer. Does God do evil? No. Is God in control? Same thing happened first service. Depends, right? Yeah, it's a good point. Depends. Now, this is not my point. My point is not to make you feel bad about phrases that you use. My point is not to tell you you're wrong for saying that. But what I want to help you do is understand what you mean when you say those kinds of phrases. And when other people use those phrases, help you understand how to reason through your own beliefs based on who Christ showed us God is to deal with these subjects. Amen? Now, nobody would say God is evil, and they most likely would not say God is doing evil, but a lot of people say God's in control. And it's like, what's the difference? How you understand God will determine how you read the Bible. So that's what I want to talk about is how you understand God. Because if God's in control... If God has predetermined every circumstance, not just every circumstance, but every minutia within that circumstance, even the desires of the heart of the people in those circumstances is predetermined, then we have to push it all the way down to an area. And I'm glad the teens aren't in here. And if you're watching online and you don't like disturbing imagery because I'm about to talk about Jeffrey Dahmer, and I'll even give you a disclaimer. If you know who Jeffrey Dahmer is and that type of stuff really disturbs you, I'm just going to say you might want to step out for a minute. I'll give you five seconds. That's not a joke. He's a serial killer that did some really disgusting things. So, if God is in control, again, we're dealing with these ideas, these thoughts, these phrases that people use. If God is in control, if he's predetermined everything, you got to deal with that guy. What did that guy I mean, so in other words, God, from that perspective, is sitting there planning out how Jeffrey would entice mostly young men, 
to his apartment, handcuff them, how he would kill them, how he would take their heads off. God planned that this man would put their heads in his refrigerator and store them, take their bones and make art with it, take their headless bodies and make furniture out of them. God planned that. God's in control. If he's in control, you got to go there with it. I'm telling you, that's how serious it is. Did God plan that? Does God do evil? Is God in control? I'm telling you, man, people get angry when you start pushing these buttons. You might use that phrase, but you don't mean that, and that's fine. You might mean some version of Romans 8, which I dealt with two weeks ago, that talks about all things work together for good, right. you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> My brain is moving 90 miles an hour. So that's what we got to go with it. Does it go down to that level? Now, you might say, well, he's not doing that, but he's allowing kidnapping or he's allowing children to starve or he's allowing cancer or he allowed Satan to tempt Job. It's like, all right, does God do evil? Would you say that if, if we all collectively decided to take five children and put them on this stage and leave them in here for a month and not feed them or give them water, would that be evil? Is God doing that? No. Now, most of you don't believe that. But now, I'm telling you, this might be uncomfortable, but we have to go there because we are tasked with representing God. Right. We can't back down. This, the mandate of this church is to stand up for the goodness of God, Amen. to stand up for the true character of who God really is, unequivocally. Because other places that are out there, well, our brothers and sisters that we will enjoy heaven with, are telling people that God is doing those kinds of things. And they're telling them in a roundabout kind of way with phrases like, God has a plan. Everything happens for a reason. God's in control. And I'm not just trying to present a humanistic, philosophical debate or argument. These are not just thoughts that I'm pulling out. You actually have to go to Scripture and deal with these issues. Are you with me? All right. So... Let's look at some of these. These are some staples of uh, the systematic approach that says God has determined everything already. And it really, the lens of how you see God will determine how you read these particular passages. I have had conversations with people talking about the idea that cancer is not God's plan, that, any, that, that illness, lack, any of that, any of the stuff that we see as the effects of sin in this planet, none of that is God's plan. Now, again, I realize what happens is when we say those kinds of things, the idea rises up, well, God, doesn't, doesn't he already know ahead of time? So if he already knows, how has he not planned them? I mean, you might be watching your child do something, and you know what they're about to do. Are you telling them to stick their hand on that hot stove? Do you know what's going to happen to them? You see them running toward that stove, and you can't get there fast enough, and they are ignoring you. Did you allow that child to burn themselves on that hot stove? Well, you see, God doesn't do it. God is bigger than... It's the same thing. So how you read that... I've, I've heard people use this passage to validate their, their belief that God is in control, and that means 
Everything happens for a reason. Everything. And I say, well, yeah, it does. Sometimes that reason is you make a really bad decision or you believe a lie or you're in unbelief. But to say everything happens for a reason as a backup to God's doing everything, that have a prop, there's a problem with that. And, and Scripture in Christ has a problem with that. So our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Now, how do you read that? Again, I'm not putting a nice bow on this. I'm, I'm poking you. I'm poking your thinking. I'm, I'm stirring some stuff up within you to deal with these thoughts. I want, I'm wanting to equip you and challenge you of where you go and how you have conversations with people that believe the stuff that they say. Right. Why do they believe that? Have they really processed through? Let's keep going. Say, keep going. All right. How about this one? Job 12.10, which Job, by the way, admitted that he was wrong. Right. Can I just talk about Job for a minute? Yeah. <laughs> I did it a little bit later in the first service. But with Job, if you're familiar with the story, first off, you've got to read the whole book. Job repents for the things that he said about God. Because God showed up and said, who do you think you are accusing me of all this stuff? You don't, you don't know what you're talking about. This is who I am. And God defends himself. And Job repents and of everything that he said. Now, the reason it's said of Job that he didn't sin against God when he said the Lord gives and the Lord takes away is because there was no revelation of who God was in that time. If you look and see when that was written, it was before the law. There was no law. There was no standard to hold against people. He was in that place of pre-law, pre-revelation. He didn't know any better. And if you read Job... Honestly, the whole thing points back to him saying, you know, I, I didn't know what I was talking about. That's not who God really is. You look at the picture in the throne room of, of Satan coming to the Father, which he has no more access, by the way, because when Jesus ascended with his own blood into that heavenly holy of holies, he cleansed that area and kicked out Satan. Behold, I saw Satan fall like lightning was 2,000 years ago. Boy, I'm just touching on all kinds of issues here. Gentlemen. It's true. Go look at it. See, that's why you can't just read a text without topically understanding what happened in those moments. Are you with me? So Job, God the Father, seated on his throne in that heavenly holy of holy. You know, there are times when it talks about God, God's responding, and it talks about the depravity and darkness of man, and, and God's like, wow, I didn't, I didn't see that. I didn't see that coming in certain terms. It's like, I didn't think that they would go that dark. I'm not saying that God doesn't know everything, but I don't think God sits there and spends his time going into the dark minds of humans and what we do. He could if he chose, but I don't think he chooses to. That's just the personal opinion on that. So you got Satan coming before the Father. And King James says this. Are you with me? King James says that God said, have you considered my servant Job as if God reaches over and holds up some 3D hologram image of Job and says, how about my servant? Why don't you go mess with him a little bit? As if God is birthing and hatching the idea of, God, of Job being tempted. Number one, who was it that took everything away from Job? Did God allow it? <laughs> Apparently, angels have, yeah, Job allowed it. 
That's where I'm going. Apparently, angels have free will as well. What he actually says is, have you set your heart on my servant Job? It's like he comes to, to the defense of Job rather than serving him up to the enemy to be tempted. And then, the, and then the enemy says, the accuser says, well, I bet if this happens and this happens, da, 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 and God's like, you're not going to kill him. You're not going to kill him. And then he says, behold, he's in your hands. That word behold, you have to understand what that word is. It's a declarative statement, really, that's acknowledging an existing truth. There's a lot of theology behind that. If you go and you look at how that word is used, when he says, behold, it's like, behold, Copy is sitting there. Now, I didn't allow him to sit there. I didn't make him sit there. I'm recognizing an already existing reality. That's what God is doing. God is acknowledging, look, he's already in your hands, but you're not going to kill him. Now, there are some things there that I might not understand, and that's fine. I'm not pretending to know it all. But... Uh, to say that God crafted it and God allowed it is not true to the original language. It then, then, so, so then Job later says, that which I feared the most has come upon me. We look at those and think, oh, poor Job. When really, that is the reason the enemy was able to come into his life and do what he did. is because Job's fear gave place for that. Hello. Either God did it or Job allowed it to happen in his own life. Uh-oh. Sacred cows butchered and slaughtered anyway. <clears throat> Here's another one. Isaiah 45. Now, this is a big one. Let's read it. Well, I'll read it. I am the Lord and there is none else. Amen? Amen. That is a statement of the sovereignty of God. What does sovereign mean? Sovereign ultimately means the ultimate ruler, the almighty one, the supreme being. There is none greater. That is a statement about God's power. What you have to realize is that there's a difference between statements about his power and how he's choosing to exercise that power. So let's read this. I'm the Lord, there is none else. Amen. There is no God beside me. Amen. Now, this is a selection from Isaiah where God is speaking to King Cyrus. And it's, it's kind of a disc, it's, it's a big staple area that the systematic approach to theology, the God's in control, Calvinistic perspective goes to this a lot and uses it as validation that God is causing every circumstance to happen. So let's keep reading. He says, I girded thee, though thou hast not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Uh-oh. How do we deal with that? Is God evil? Does God do evil? How do you read that? We're going to start some new life groups this week because there's going to be lots of dialogue and conversation happening. Again, this is one of those statements where it's acknowledging that God is all-powerful, 
but how do we deal with that statement? Because I don't know about you, but I've actually had people come to me with this passage to validate their belief that God hatched mass murder within the heart of Jeffrey Dahmer. Now, you push that hard and you realize, oh, I don't know about it, I don't know about it, but, you know, <clears throat> and then you, then you get more of a philosophical, emotional answer from people who don't use emotion within their understanding of Scripture. Well, this is just what it says. Okay, well, let's look at what it says. Because if we're going to just look at what it says, then we have to understand what it means in context of every other area that is talking about these types of matters. God's character is at stake here, and we represent Him. Don't you want to know Him? Don't you want to know how to sort through these things? Yeah. I, create, I make peace and create evil. I do all these things. So there is an idea uh, called the law of first reference. When you think of evil, what's the first mention of evil in Scripture? The knowledge of the tree of good and evil. Or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So you go back to that, and how do we understand that in terms of the first presence of evil? What is it? It's a choice. It's an option. How can there be the knowledge of good without, without evil? How can there be free will choice? How in the world can God hold you responsible for your actions and give you a way to be saved apart from your actions in Christ if you are not responsible for your actions? It's a big play. It's a big joke. So to understand what he's saying here, I form the light, create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do these things. He's not saying, I do the evil. He's saying, I have created the opportunity for it because that's how it's understood when it first appears. We all have the opportunity. He says, look, I've set before you blessing and cursing, life and death. I've set it before you. Right. Choose life. It's like he gives you the answer to the right. test. Right. Here it is. You've got a choice. Now choose life. If they didn't have the opportunity to do evil, we would not be free will agents. It's the classic Armenian perspective. And I'm not even trying to put tent posts in the ground of Armenianism. I'm just saying... If we're going to look at God's in control or everything happens for a reason, well, what do you mean by that? Because I'm telling you, you see that all over social media and you see that in personal conversations when people will say, trying to make you feel better, standing at the graveside of a lost loved one and someone will say, thinking they're comforting you, well, everything happens for a reason. As if that's supposed to make you feel better. It's like you're telling me God took my wife you're telling me God is actively starving children all over the planet? You're telling me that right now, in this moment, there, have, there are children that have been kidnapped and are probably being tortured. we got to go there. As, as horrible as that is to think about, it's a reality happening right now. Is that God's design? Yeah, 56 million abortions last year. Is God doing it? Is he allowing it? And what's the difference? He's given mankind dominion over this planet. It's what we've done to it. You want to know God's will, you look at the garden. Perfection. Free from sin, free from sickness, free from death. We took that authority to choose in and of ourselves, but ultimately... When his whole plan, overall plan, which you can think of his plan as this, you know, he's, he's uh, 
leased us a home and we live within that home and he owns the home, but whatever you do in that home is up to you. He can't legally come in there and tell you what you're supposed to do. He can give you instructions, but you have a choice. You look in heaven, right? What is heaven like? I mean, from what I understand, Jeffrey Dahmer, if you take him at his word, not judging his heart, but the confession of his mouth, that man is there. Yeah. Have you seen that interview? He, can't, he, he very articulately presents the gospel. Now, is it real or not? I don't know. Is God's power strong enough to save a man like that? Wow. Wow. I, I mean, these are big issues that we have to deal with. When your friends say or you say God is in control or everything happens for a reason, well, what do you mean by that? Let's talk about that for a minute, you know? And, and most of us don't want to have those conversations. A lot of times because it just turns into an emotional and people that are smarter than you start whipping out scriptures and you feel inadequate and you don't feel like you can have that conversation, so you just don't. I get it. We all do that. I do that. But it's important that we push back on it. At least from the perspective of, well, I know this one thing. The clearest picture that we have of who God is, is Jesus. Let's look at him first, and then let's reason together about all this other stuff. All right? <clears throat> There's a difference between descriptions of God's power and how he actually uses that power. There's a difference between what God has the capacity to do and how he engages us within his power. Sovereign just means supreme ruler, ultimate being. But how is he expressing that sovereignty? That's where we differ. That's where people come up with ideas that he's pre-planned everything or we're experiencing the result of our choices and just sin being in the earth. Injustice happens all the time. I'm not saying you got cancer because you sinned. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying sin in general damaged this world to the point that things like cancer can dwell within it. Right. We know God's character through Christ. So, if we know who God is, most clearly through who Jesus says that he is, we have to look at when Jesus describes. See, there's a difference between sovereign, authoritative statements about who God is and then descriptions of Jesus of the character and heart of God towards you. Do you see the difference what I'm talking about? Watch, watch here. This is Matthew 6. This is Jesus talking about who God is so that we can understand who God is. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Then he gives us this idea as well. Which of you, if your sons ask for bread, will he give them a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give them a snake? Any of you dads would do that? Moms even? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. This is not just Jesus trying to make people feel good about God. Because that's sometimes what a message like this and a church like this gets accused of, that we're just, you know, people just have their ears being tickled and we're permissive and all that. It's like, no, 
What we're doing is we are trying to come into harmony with how Jesus intentionally describes the heart of God toward you. That's how you have to understand and frame God's inner dealings with this earth is his heart toward mankind. Amen? Because there is a world out there that will tell you, well, everything happens for a reason. God's in control. And they don't know what they're talking about. They don't even know how far they mean that. They just know that they experience something and they're willing to kind of trust that God maybe worked it out for them or something really hard's happening in their lives and it brings them comfort to say, well, God's working it out. God's just in control. I don't really understand His will. Well, I know what His will is. Do you? It's heaven is His will. That, nothing less than heaven in every life, in every situation. God has one idea of what He wants your life to be like, and that is perfection. Experiencing the depths of His grace and mercy towards you now and forever, even in the ages to come. That's God's will. That is God's heart toward mankind. How in the world can you take this ultimate, eternal, without end reality that God has created for us and we will live within and then bring an understanding about that God into this earth and attribute atrocity, darkness, death to Him? Now, the paradox, I, I understand they're big questions. They're appropriate questions. I can hear your questions. Well, if he already knew about it, doesn't that mean that he's allowing it? You tell me. You have to decide. It's important. Because a lot of preachers, especially in this area, are standing in the middle of a Calvinistic approach and will say that God is designing your torment, that God is designing your calamity, so just embrace it. Now, I'm not even talking about healing and on to things like that. We could go there, but that's not even what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about one very simple thing, God's heart towards you and who he really is. Are you with me? I get, I mean, I understand this is heavy and it's not easy to talk about this stuff. Most of us are kind of already past some of these ideas, but, but it's hard to have these conversations with people because I'm just telling you, the Calvinistic perspective attracts people that are academic in their mindset and pride themselves in knowing the Bible and can chapter and verse you up and down the street and leave you feeling inadequate. You ever been there? I have. You know what it did? It sent me to study. It sent me to know what the heck I'm talking about. And I'm still on that. I'm still learning. I'm still growing. I love being challenged because it makes me go and look at how I say what I believe. But I know this. I know God. And I know his word. And I'm trying to put it together where we collectively band together and can go into this world and confidently help people understand who God is through who Jesus revealed him to be. That's why we focus so much on identity, the finished work of Christ. It's important, especially in this region. And again, I'm really not trying to cause division, but we live in a very Baptist area. Most Baptist pastors have been through a 
some form of Calvinistic seminary. Most Baptists have some blend of a Calvinistic approach, and it creates a lot of confusion. It's why a church like this, in the middle of where we are, uh, hears about emails being sent to people that are trying this church out to stay away from us. Yeah, you want to know how I know that? Just so you know. Yeah, whatever. You know what? Those people are just trying to do what they think is the right thing to do. You know, I don't take that personally. But it's like we have to stand up. Don't be afraid to explore these and have conversations with people. Even if you don't feel like you have the scriptural reference to back it up and, and go toe-to-toe with some of these mindsets and some of these people, at least be willing to stand on this one thing and say, Jesus is the clearest picture of who God is. Jesus is not doing that. What we know is that God wants heaven for us. That's where we're going. Why in the world would He hold you accountable for your actions if you weren't accountable for your actions? See, God made my head itch right then, so I would do that. <laughs> Ain't he good? These are the kinds of passages that talk about his character, not just declarative statements about his authority. And that's what we have to look at to frame up who we, how we see him. As for God, his way is perfect. The Lord's word is flawless. He shields all those who take refuge in him so that he can give them cancer and torture them. I, I'm really not just trying to give philosophical emotional arguments because that is what this would be attacked as from that mindset as if it doesn't hold enough water as if it's just well it's just you're just throwing your ideas into it no I'm really not I'm using the words of Jesus to look at the character of God finding other validation where God says these things about himself and looking at how God has interacted with mankind and will continue to interact with mankind. You can't just read black and white letters on a page, sometimes red, and not attach it and, and work, go through other topics and other ideas and put all this perspective together. It's not just a textbook. We're not academics in school trying to understand ideas and concepts and just Scripture. We're dealing with a God, a, a being that has emotions, that desires relationship with us. Who is he? What kind of God is this? That's what's at stake here. Not, it's not emotionalism. It's the reality of who is it that we serve. I put it up early, but the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. I love that. I love how it says it. As some understand slowness, instead, slowness, instead he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's God's heart. That's God's heart. Amen? Now, there's another one. And I didn't have it in my notes, but somebody mentioned it between services, so I'm just going to bring it up. But you remember the idea? Maybe y'all can help me. We'll throw it up on the screen. But when uh, the guy comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, who was it that uh, sinned? Was it this man's mother or father that caused him to be blind? You heard that story? Yeah. If you haven't heard that story, it's in the Bible. 
Uh, and so what does Jesus say? Now, again, when you understand the character of God and who Jesus is and who Jesus showed us that God is, then you look at those. Because if you just read the text, it looks like it might be confusing. Let me go here, just so I don't distract you. So what Jesus says is neither, but that God would be glorified, I'm going to do these works, essentially is what he's saying. What, what it can sound like is this, is that he's saying, well, it's not because the man's father or mother sinned, but it's because God preordained this thing so that Jesus would come along and heal this blind man so that God would get glory. That's one way to look at it. And I understand that. But here's another way to look at it. And I'm not just trying to twist scripture. I'm not just trying to make it fit what I'm saying. I'm actually applying proper exegesis based on who Jesus shows us the character of God to be as a way of understanding that scripture. Because that's the goal, right? Understand the scripture. What he says is this. Who sinned? Man, the man's mom, dad. Jesus says, think of it this way. Neither. End of sentence. Put a period there. Now, now that I've covered that for you, now that I've answered your question, neither. Just quit thinking that way. Neither. It's neither his mother or his father that sinned that made this man blind. All right? End of story. Neither. Now, so that the works, of, so that God would be glorified, let me do the works and let me heal him. You see the difference? Is that improper? You see? Yeah, so it's not neither. Here's the real answer. God did it so that God would get glorified. It's neither. Well, I don't know why you're thinking like that. Neither end. But so that God will be glorified, it's like changing the subject, moving on. So that God will be glorified, I'm going to heal him so that the works of God, so that God can get glory. See that? Does that make sense? Uh, uh, you, so your religious detoxing is happening. That's what's happening. I'm not trying to make fun of you, but that's what happens. When, we, when, we, when, you, when you have a challenge seeing it, because you've seen it one way for a long period of time, and it's like, whoa. Then that's when it's like, you're evil. You are a heretic because you are confusing me. I'm not, you're not doing this at all. I'm not saying that you are. However, when you see something a very specific way and you might even have your identity attached to it, somebody starts knocking on your pet doctrines, they become your enemy. You got to know that that's how people are going to respond to you because if you go and you try to explain what Jesus is actually doing there, which I think is what he's actually doing, is like he's moving on from the idea that it was because of sin and moving into what's really going on is that God will be glorified as he heals him. Tilt, that's that detox that needs to happen. People, unsource, oh, well, now wait a minute. Because if it is neither, here's the real reason, God made him blind so that I could heal him through Jesus, then we're back to Jeffrey Dahmer land. It's the same thing. Now, it's along the lines of a spectrum of intensity, but it's the same thing, meaning God's heart toward mankind. God will do this to you to bring himself glory. You deal with Pharaoh in Romans 9. Let me just finish these couple. Of, yeah, so, I mean, that's where we are. I'm going to go there. I'm going to go there. Y'all ready? You chose to be at the second service, so here we go. All right. 
Let's just read it. What then shall we say? So, all right, Romans 9. Are you familiar with Romans 9? Romans 9, the reason I'm going into Romans 9 is because it's, it's where uh, the clay, the potter and the clay, and it's like how can the clay question the potter because after all, God does whatever he wants to do. I mean, I'm telling you, this is like the breeding ground of Calvinistic thought. Huh? No, I'm not kidding. You, if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. Help me, Jesus. All right, here we go. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. All right, let me, let me kind of just give you the end from the beginning to frame up what he's talking about here. Ultimately, he's talking to Jews who are still wrestling with the idea that Gentiles could be saved. Paul is addressing the idea that salvation is not just for the Jews, but Gentiles. Yes, those dirty, rotten, half-breed, sinful, dark Gentiles can be saved because God can do whatever He wants to do. And what He wants to do is provide the opportunity for even Jeffrey Dahmer to get saved. That is what he's doing in Romans 9. He uses the example of Pharaoh in the midst of it, which can be confusing. But how you understand the character of God will determine how you think he's giving the explanation of hardening Pharaoh's thought as evidence to say that God wants to provide salvation for the Gentiles as well. How many of you have a really hard time with the idea that you might spend eternity in heaven with Jeffrey Dahmer after what he did to those people? Think about it. That's how the Jews felt about the Gentiles. It just is. And that's what he's dealing with. We contextually don't understand the cultural issues going on here, but that's what's happening. All right, so you ready? Does that help? All right. What shall we say then? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Let me ask you a question. Did Pharaoh have a choice? How many chances did God give him? Why did he use frogs? I, I'm not sure. I'm just sorry. <clears throat> That's the key question. Did Pharaoh have a choice? Or did God, before he made anything, decide, I tell you what, here's what's going to happen. This guy in Egypt, he'll never even have a chance. Now, see, the Calvinistic perspective would say this, that the elect are the people amongst Jews or Gentiles that, that they're the only ones that even have the opportunity to be saved. In other words, God is creating some people with the foreknowledge, knowing that he will send them into the lake of fire and they will perish in the end. They don't even have the opportunity to be the elect. They could never even be saved from the beginning. And the elect all go to this church, by the way. 
is what they would say. They wouldn't really say it that way, but that's pretty much what they mean. It's like, we think that because we understand Scripture properly, we're probably the elect. But then that's where the sin comes in, and it's like, well, why are you still sinning? Well, you're still sinning because probably you're not saved yet. Because if you still sin, then that means that you desire darkness, and God has not yet given you the faith to break free from that sin. They think that, sin, that salvation happens this way. When God's good and ready for you to be saved, He will give you some faith to be able to respond to God to get saved. You can't be saved until I give you some faith to get saved. You ever heard that perspective? That is what it says. God will give you saving faith or whatever the terminology would be. And then I'm telling you, man, every passage that is read from there on about elect and sovereignty is filtered through those types of mindsets. It's like an indoctrination program. If you're not familiar with five-point Calvinism, go look at it. It's a little scary. You, when you first read it, you're like, it seems to make sense because these scriptures seem to be saying this, but it leaves out putting it all together within the heart of God. It makes God a sadistic masochist is really what it makes. It's, I'm, just, I'm just, again, that's not just an emotional reaction. We have to think these things through based on who God revealed himself to be in Christ. Let's keep going. So the point is, did Pharaoh have a choice? Now, probably what happened is the same kind of instruction that the church that God gives to Paul, and that is if somebody continues in sin, turn them over. They're reprobate. Turn them over to Satan after going to them and trying to recover them. But if they won't turn their hearts toward him, there's nothing you can do. They've sealed their own fate. That's the same thing that happens here. God is exercising the same principle that he expects us to adhere to. Now, again, where we're about to go, you got to realize he's using the example of hardening Pharaoh to prove his point that God can do whatever he wants to do for the justification of providing salvation for Gentiles. Now, you may not have thought this stuff through. You may, you may, this may be not interesting to you. You're good enough with God's good and only good, and you're fine with that. And I'm not knocking you. That's not my point. But what I just said is incredibly significant in understanding Romans 9. What God is doing, what Paul is doing here is he's using Pharaoh as the justification that God can do whatever he wants to do and he's challenging people in how they would respond to God as the validation that God can provide salvation to whomever he wants to provide salvation for, to all who will believe. That is what's at stake here. That is the point of Romans 9. Okay, let's keep going. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who is able to resist his will? And see, even back then they were having the conversation. It's like, why would God hold me accountable if he's already predetermined everything? That's kind of the conversation. But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is... So he's talking to people that are questioning if Gentiles can be saved, challenging them. But who are you, a human being, he's defending the, the offer of salvation to all who will believe, essentially. And if you read it before and after, that's what he's talking about. But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Uh, 
Shall what is formed say to the one who is formed, why did you make me? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Filtering it through, Gentiles can also be saved. What if God, although choosing to show His wrath and make His power known, bore with great patience the objects of His wrath prepared for destruction? In other, this is what he's saying here. He's saying, why would God exercise patience toward someone that was only created for destruction? Why would God play that game? Why would God waste his time with patience toward Pharaoh who was only created for evil in the beginning anyway? It's illogical for God to exercise patience toward someone who was only created for evil to begin with. Are you with me? That's what he's saying. Do you see it? Why would he bother? Well, but it just says this. I get that it just says that. But let me ask you this. Did Pharaoh have a choice? Okay. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us whom he called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. I'm not just making up the contextualization that he's giving his arguments for based on this one passage. It's what he's doing. Go back and look at it. All right. I'm, and I'm, not, I'm not mad at you, by the way. I'm just, this is just, this is important. It's really important. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. Now watch, what he's doing is he's giving, he's unpacking the reason he just did the clay thing, the reason he brought up Pharaoh. Now he goes into great detail that he's talking about the Gentiles. God can do whatever he wants to do. Look what he did with Pharaoh, the clay. How can the clay say to the potter? Now what you're challenged with, you religious pharisaical Jew that thinks that you can only be saved, is that these Gentiles can be saved. That's what we're talking about. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my beloved one who is not my beloved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the children of the living God. If you've ever read Romans 9 and you wondered why he starts talking about Gentiles after he starts trying to create a discourse for why God's in control, why? Does it make sense more now to you? In context, properly exegeting the word, let's do it. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only the, only the remnant will be saved, for the Lord will carry out His sentence on earth <clears throat> with speed and finality. Is it, it is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom, we would have become like Gomorrah, what then shall we say that the Gentiles who did not pursue, when the Gentiles say, uh, what then shall we say that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it? See, he's still talking about this. This is the explanation of why he brought all of it up. A, righteous that is by, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith as it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone which is 
faith righteousness. The stumbling stone of the gospel is that you can be righteous apart from your works. Pharisees hate that idea. And I would say that mindset has bled its way into Calvinism and how it relates to what faith looks like in the heart of a person. As it is written, see I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall and, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. It's important. Now you may not go through a discourse like I just did with taking one of the most complex chapters in the Bible and framing it for the purpose of lifting out how it flows together to talk to some academic that is saying the exact opposite of what it's actually saying but thinks that they're right because they're smarter than you. That's a little unfair. I didn't really mean to... I mean, you know, that's how you end up feeling when you have these kinds of conversations with people like that, how they come at you. You guys know you have it in your background. You have it in your family. You have it in your social media. It's the reason why... You don't want to push back when people say, well, everything happens for a reason or, you know, God's just working everything to his good or God's in control. There are people in this church that have gotten up on this stage and testified God is in control. And I usually have the conversation with that person after, well, what do you mean by that? Tell me what you mean by that. Because that's my job. My job is to prod you and poke you and help you get to the bottom within your heart what it is that you really believe. And let's frame this in the proper character of who God really is, which is best understood through Jesus and who he showed us and told us that God is. Are you with me? This is where we're going. It's the reason why this church is growing. It's the reason why, you know, we organize. We come in week after week. It's, it, is the, it is the mission of this place, of this body, and, and I think the awakening of the gospel all over the planet to properly represent who God is, to help people detach from that religious mindset, to come out of the land of the Pharisees and live under the gospel, to live within the finished work of Christ, to accurately represent Him. Now, I get it. This brings up all kinds of questions. And you got to wrestle with that stuff. You start sorting through, and, and I would challenge you, make sure that when you sort through these things, ask yourself, do I have an aspect of my identity attached to this? Why am I struggling? Why, am, why can't I see it? You may be a question for you. I mean, people watching online maybe have heard this kind of stuff for the first time. Why can't I see it? Because I see that it's this or Yes, but I've been taught this all my life and this is just too radical and I, whatever it is. I don't, you know, whatever. There's all different lines along the spectrum that are dealing with a message like this. Some of you, it's like, well, finally that makes sense. Thank you. I'm telling you, Romans 9, it's been a, most people stay away from it. And I haven't preached it much. It matters. I, let me shift your thinking here for a minute, all right? Let's look at this as a family for just a minute. We're all come together because we want to be together. Look around for just a minute. You know, we're not just detached people showing up at a church that meets in a storefront. We are the body of Christ. We are his arms and his feet and his eyes and his nose is his nose. Got one nose. We are called together according to one purpose, and that is 
to help others come into the unity of the faith in the knowledge of Christ. Everything that we know has to make sense in who Christ is. God is bringing everything together in heaven and on earth together in Christ unto the restoration of all things. It's where we're going. We have a job to do along the way, and that is help other people trust God. Help other people work through these issues. Yes, understand Scripture accurately and properly. That may not be your role. You may be more of an emotional communicator. That's okay. Have some resources. Have some things dialed in. You know, that's why we put articles out and have messages and everything's free online. Most of ours, like 95% of it's free. So that you can go listen or point people or use those resources, whatever it is, you know. Because I know that this lights a fire in some of you and makes you want to go study Scripture even deeper. Send me your questions. Call me. Most of you have my phone number. Text me. Call me. Whatever. Email. Set a lunch appointment. Come see me. I, I will sit down with you and talk through these things. Not because I'm going to tell you what you're supposed to believe, but so that together we work this stuff out. Because we are the body of Christ. This is not just a group of people sitting in rows looking at me. We together have been called according to one purpose, to declare the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, to tell the world the good news about who God really is. And I get it. It's challenging. This is not a nominal church for people to just come in and sit on the back row and slide out. You can do that if you want to. I'm not mad at you. I mean, it's fine. Uh, in a bigger building that we'll have before too long, you can do that easier. But, but I, man, I, I want... I don't want warriors. I want people who know their father, who are so convinced of his love for you, that you're so confident in who you know God to be, that you can stand in front of anyone and take their confrontation and let go of your ego, let go of your sense of feeling inadequate because you don't know the Bible well enough and stand up for who your God really is as he's been revealed in Christ. Amen? Amen? That's what we're doing. That's where we're going, and that's why God's using this body in this community and around the globe to get this message out. We're going to keep doing it. Amen. And it's just going to get stronger and stronger. Amen? Are you with us? Are you with it? Are you with whatever? Whatever adjectives or whatever those words are. Anyway, that's how I know when I stop. I should stop preaching because I don't make sense after... So anyway, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. Thank you that you're good. Thank you that you have shown us who you really are in Christ. Thank you that we can trust that your ultimate will for us is heaven. We start from that place. We start from where you want us to end up, and that is with you living in perfection, forever experiencing the riches of your grace, even in the ages to come. And we bring that reality back into this time right now to show people this is who you really are. We have seen a glimpse of what that eternal state looks like and we bring that into this place to invite people out of the darkness so they are not cast into the lake of fire and separated you from you forever. So that they will not perish. It is not your desire that anyone perish. Thank you, Father, for your word where we can dig into to gain insight and learning and understanding. But we thank you for your spirit, 
for that relationship that we have. We open our hearts to you, to know you. We love you because you love us. We trust you. We trust you. Amen. Amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this message. And thank you to those of you who support Forward Ministries financially. You truly are changing the way the world sees God. You're helping people detox from performance-based religion and experience God's love for them. We're committed to helping you renew your mind so you'll experience transformation and move forward in every area of your life. I pray you're making this heart journey. Visit my website at clintbyers.com for hundreds of free teachings and articles that will empower you to renew your mind and put on your eternal identity in Christ. I'm especially excited about my tools for transformation that have original music and modern technology designed to help you slow down and connect with the Spirit of God in your heart. I'd like to invite you to partner with Forward Ministries. Help us continue to spread the gospel and develop resources that are empowering people to grow in their identity in Christ. Thank you again for joining me. I pray God's blessings and promises over you and your family today.